All right, we're back. Back to the map room. So last week we talked about the human migration map. Yeah, of, of the human species, basically. Of the human species, of, of, of Homo sapiens. Yeah. So that was a corner map for a main feature map I did. Which is a new map here called Old Kin and Humankind. Right. And uh, it's supposed to be uh, a way to satisfy uh, people's interest in race. But uh, it also flips race because like a lot of people will see this as like mapping out the kind of key areas of, or origins of different human races. So this is kind of um, a follow-up map to the constellation one we've talked about in a previous episode. Right, right. Yeah, which which is in your choreographical depictions map. Right. So it actually has the same theme. Has the same theme, but this one you mapped it in a little more detail. Yeah. And this is like, remember last time you were like looking forward to seeing actual profiles of how yeah. it all worked? Yeah. Because like it was last time it was very abstract. It was setting the foundation for people to understand what we're trying to do here. We're flipping race. Well, human species is, is a spectrum and everyone is part of that spectrum. Like you can't just say French people are this race because they're, they have all of these genetic markers from these different points in history from early human migrations mm -hmm. to late contributing factors. Mm -hmm. So what would make Frenchness, quote unquote, would be that particular mix of all of these different exactly. admixtures and exactly. ancestries. And each individual is different. And but if you do, a, like, you know, in geography, mm -hmm. we use the word population very differently. Mm -hmm. Like a population is a sample kind of sample. Yeah. Right. Which which would be these different unique profiles you have. Yeah. These are population areas. averages. Yeah. So these are population averages. Obviously, the data is not that great. Like in the real world, there's not enough data out there to produce something like this. Mm -hmm. But let's say there was the funding sources to do this, where they said, hey, we're going to try to do 10 percent. No. Or I don't know, maybe even one percent is quite radical. One percent of the French population randomly uh, sample them. And let's produce a genetic profile of that population, that one percent. To represent our whole thing and each individual might be different like there might be one person who has a lot of contributions from this one area another person would be here but on average mm -hmm. what would it look like and that's what these profiles are right which is actually going to be the topic of our next video so we'll do that next time and that's going to be really fascinating yeah it's gonna be but fun. today we're going to talk about the corner map corner map the opposite corner map uh, so the first corner map was about old the human species migration that are probably like foundations of human population differences this one is going to show how in the last 500 or so years all of that um radically changed like humans have been migrating for millennia right we know this but the amount of extermination and, and kind of disruption that happened in the last 500 years has really changed the makeup of of, of the way humans look across the world right mm -hmm. and so this one uh, is to map uh, the, like the age of exploration or basically the early modern era to the current modern era to show how um, those established uh, populations and those established kind of uh, genetic um, uh, markers in those areas, um, how they got affected by this the new era. So, mm -hmm. but, but one thing to note is this is for Altera. And Altera is not a utopic vision, but in my vision to try to include a lot of diversity in the world, that like that's the main goal. It ultimately has some utopic strands. And in this case here, there's less genocide, less mass violence, less replacement. Mm -hmm. A real world map would look 
way worse than this. Yeah. So I mean, what you're talking about right now, for example, is the shading of the continents. Yeah. So you come up, you came up with a three color scheme. Yeah. Kind of where you have a beige background, a light gray background, and then a, a darker gray. And those colors represent the amount of replacement yeah. that's happened in those areas in the last couple hundred years. Yeah. And so the, the beige areas represent an area where you have less than 30% replacement. Yeah. Whereas the dark gray ones represent an area where you have 90% replacement. Yeah, 90 to 100, basically. And so, I mean, in Altera, it's, I mean, the Americas are, or uh, the Gemini in, in Altera Geminis, yeah. uh, are, are the continents or the land masses which are subject to most replacement, whereas the, mo the rest of the world is has a very low replacement rate. Yeah. And as, yeah. as in, basically, as in our world. Yeah. So, I mean, the difference, I guess, in our world would be, the Americas would be much more great. It'd be completely. It would yeah. be completely. Except for like Bolivia, Peru, yeah. and Southern Mexico. Mm -hmm. you, would, you would not... And I guess yeah. uh, Australia as well. Yeah, Australia. Mm -hmm. Australia was extreme. And Southern Africa. Mm -hmm. um, you can see, uh, if we look closer into like, let's say Southern Africa here, you can see, like, I try to do a little justice to like the kind of population, what do you call those, like enclaves? Of like European, so you can see like this. This brown color is sixty percent. Mm -hmm. So that's Cape Town and yeah, I like, guess the Bowers, like the, the coast, the coast, and then Dutch. this is the High Veld. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you know, sixty percent. It doesn't mean that this is majority white. Like sixty percent replacement just means that, like for example, replacements from anywhere. So yeah, it could well, be, well, no, no, like so, or is it mainly European replacement? Well, well, actually, it just so happens the majority of the action is being done by Europeans, but that's not the point. The point is to show radical genetic differences so okay. let's say like the mefficane the, the great right. mefficane or basically the great zulu expansion um uh, in southern africa that killed a lot of people mm. um that wouldn't make it onto this map per se because it's like uh it's quite similar people so like the actual overall genetic picture of that area hasn't changed what i'm trying to map in this thing is to show like a very radical shift from mm. Um, from like a kind of this kind of one part of the spectrum, the human species going to the other, like swing into this other side. Okay. Right. So, so I guess here in your map, uh, those areas which are colored gray yeah. are ones that are actually, uh, being a, a topic of potential massacre or, yeah. or yeah. of potential replacement. Or, so I guess you would imagine those the points that you've identified to be near those areas of replacement. Yeah, it could be. The light gray, like let's say 30% replaced, would probably map very well to the main colonial areas. As you go more interior, that colonial effect might uh, fade so that it's no longer part of the 30%, right? The effects of like inland Angola versus coastal Angola are quite drastically different. Yeah, because I'm, I'm actually um, curious. So, I, I mean, if we just take a step back. Yeah. Uh, on the left side, you have uh, human migrations yeah. across history. Yeah. And in this one, you have within the last couple hundred years. So what's uh, the, the purpose of this map? So I could have done another human migration one to satisfy that itch of like, you know, the age of exploration, the call, like, where did the Portuguese go? Where did the British go? All that kind of stuff. I might actually still do that for Altera as like another series. But I thought it'd be really cool for this to show that on the flip side of the of that, the, you know, the other side of the coin of, all, you know, those kind of maps to show settlement where Europeans went, where Asian people went, where, where all that stuff is to show the effects of what happened when those people went there. 
right? Every time someone went to wherever they went, there was a reaction and to map out that reaction. The people responsible for these consequences, it happens to be mostly European colonists. It just so happens that they're mostly Europeans. Um, but in, in some cases, uh, the reason why, let's say, the Dzungar massacres don't happen in China, where the Chinese massacre a bunch of like Mongolic peoples uh, in the, during the Qing dynasty, it doesn't happen in my world because that history doesn't happen. So like, if you look at the grand list of genocides, it really is mostly represented by Europeans. Um, but I, you know, it's not to say like, it's not to say I'm trying to say only Europeans are capable of this. Uh, and I try to get, you know, a diversity. I don't, I don't know if I'm supposed to get diversity points for people committing genocide or like mass atrocities, but it just so happens that in the last 500 years, that kind of like colonial expansion in the last 500 years was mostly spearheaded by peoples from Western Europe mm -hmm. and Russia. And so for example, yes, here you have around your, your Black Sea and yeah. Altera. And I guess Mongolia and yeah. like the strip, I guess, from from where, yeah. uh, Eastern or Europe. Or Northeast Manchuria. Northeast Manchuria. Yeah. Up to the border of, of what does that represent? The Yasak. Yasak means Yasak. Yeah. So Yasak is actually, so, um, they, they basically had a mafia scheme. The The Siberian expansion uh, was, you know, fur oriented. But unlike, unlike the Hudson Bay Company, the way that the Russian ex expansion happened is uh, they made people with their vassals and the Cossacks as well as fur collectors were allowed to raise and like obliterate people for not meeting quotas. So it was, it was basically like a mafia scheme, like uh, the way they, they did. So in some areas, people were able to meet those quotas and survive, but other areas there was like high, like there was really high amounts of violence, really, really high amounts of violence done. Just little parentheses. Yeah. Dude, I had never thought of the Hudson Bay expansion yeah. in Canada have a parallel with the expansion of Russia into Siberia. Oh yeah, it happens. Like I had never, like I had, yeah. it just blew my mind right now. Because ah. I had never seen the parallel, but right now it makes total but sense. But you know when, where they met? They're, the two competitors met in where we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. Northwest. Oh, That's I know. where it met. So what about the, uh, the green, so which you have as Nullis in the legend? Yeah, Nullius. Um, it's just a kind of uh, allusion to um, Terra Nullius. It was a kind of like international relations principle, like early international relations principle that was used um, from the um, beginning of when the Portuguese first started mapping West Africa. Basically, it was the idea that you could claim unclaimed lands or unsettled lands. The funny thing is Europeans had a very interesting interpretation of this. Uh, in the 1500s, they started thinking that uns un unsettled unpeopled meant non-Christian. And the very first instance of this being legally interpreted was when uh, Pope Urban, is, is that a name? Pope Urban, whatever. Yeah. That was one of the popes, right? He gave <laughs> official sanction for the extermination of the of Guanches. So the first um, act of, of European expansion in the age of exploration was the Canary Islands. That was mm. ground zero. And that was the extermination of a people who were actually not connected to the mainland. They just basically didn't have the same technology capabilities as like North Africans. So the Spanish and Portuguese were very used to fighting North Africans, but they weren't used to fighting these peoples who isolate from the mainland, mm -hmm. who had like slingshots, javelins and stuff. The way they interpreted their way of con conquering this land, it just led to basically the complete extermination of the population. You know, a lot of Canary Islanders will say just like it runs in their blood, Canary, like the indigenous peoples, but it's minute. It's like, 
it was almost it I, I, you could classify as genocide in this world in Altera, the guanches uh exist in madeira madeira is was never settled in real life until the portuguese went but in my world i needed that example of that age of exploration uh, act so i put it in madeira whereas the canary islanders remain a population but they just speak a very divergent berber dialect because we don't know actually what their we don't have a lot of recordings of their words but we know it was a berber language a, tam- a tamazic mm-hmm. language we just don't know what it was so i just in, i just invented this history of like a migration from you know morocco where this one branch of the uh northern tamazic languages makes it onto the canary islands but anyways the point is in madeira i still need an example of that age of exploration moment and i call it the guanches nullification nullification is cognate to nullius and nullification to be nullified is kind of a very kind of scary word it just means mm. to be exterminated right so it's just it's cool to connect this idea of terra nullius and nullification mm. terra nullius the idea of settling unclaimed lands to the disappearing of the people's on those mm. lands that were not unclaimed, it's but almost in fact a, were settled. It's, it's almost a foresight, right? Yeah. It's very ironic because like by it's almost claiming- a foresight because I mean, even if you had areas in the world that were uninhabited by humans, yeah. you had areas of the world which were very much inhabited, yeah. but were still called terra nullius. Yeah, and by claiming that, you nullify them. Exactly. Nullification. And from the start, nobody has ever lived here. And so in your mindset, you create this whole culture yeah. of, of just, creating of something just, from nothing. And just conquest. Yeah, yeah. Also which, the new world. And like, yeah, we're, we're here to find new lives. Which is uh, absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative, right? It's, it's, it's a, na- a narrative yeah. that we live in today. Which we live in and it's, so, it's so difficult to navigate because yeah. unfortunately a lot of, um, of all st- elders uh, um, share these points of view. Yeah. Anyway, so this, so that's that's uh that so actually you can't really see it too well, but you know the map it's colored it's colored ninety percent. Mm-hmm. And so by the way, just in terms of legends, here you have three symbols. So you have decimation, annihilation, and isolation. Yeah, annihilation is basically near. So you could say decimation is genocide, but not complete. The Jews were not exterminated in the Holocaust. Uh high rates of death abhorrent but it was not uh like for example even though that the ratio the amount of jewish people in europe is quite low compared to before they're still there so it was an attempt at genocide yeah uh, yeah unsuccessful like, almost successful but almost successful yeah. but like yeah but in our world there are cases where annihilation really did happen such a bill took yeah, the Beotuk or Guanches, like right, like so. There are actual cases that and so those ones you represent with, with the skull. Uh, annihilation. Yes. Yeah. So decimation would be stuff like you know Trail of Tears, the Killing Times. So, uh, this is such a scary word to, uh, t- uh, title. Like I can't believe that in Australia, that like Australian Aboriginals uh, characterize that colonial era, like the three hundred to two hundred years of their col- like colonial history as the Killing Times. It's really telling of like what Aboriginal life meant in those eras that you could just be killed and there were no repercussions. Like if you think like, you know, the whole black lives matters movement, like think of that and what they're responding to. This was like really shocking. Like just imagine that, but like imagine a way different society in the, for 200 mm-hmm. years. And you can now understand why Australia, like I this, mean, this, I mean, I mean, we were talking to 
for example, about indigenous issues in Canada. Yeah. And how these days this issue right now is yeah. is on the forefront. The bodies of the children they found in Kamloops. Yeah. And the language sounds very close. For example, I was shocked. I was reading about this yeah. a couple of days ago. And uh, one of the Indian Affairs, quote unquote, uh, agents, yeah. uh, Campbell Scott, talks about in his language and it's quoted yeah. he talks about the final solution yeah. to the indian problem yeah and this is in 1911 yeah, yeah. he's talking Way about before this. the holocaust yeah and so you see that this is um something which was planned it's in their mindset and it's, it's in the range of possibilities it's in the range of, and then it seeps into culture yeah and that is uh what is most troubling yeah is is where you have a culture of people that uh, deem themselves um yeah uh, nice, quote unquote, yeah. or friendly or open-minded, okay. but that have a very, very dark past that they have a very hard time uh, looking into. Yeah, and um, that is very chilling to think about. Yeah, and also the fact that, like, for example, a mass grave of these children. There's no way to like sugarcoat it. Like, no matter how you defend it, it's like they were so devalued that they didn't get proper burials, didn't get get proper record keeping. Mm-hmm. There's no uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, well, no, I mean, you, I mean, that is the thing. Oh, the records were destroyed. That is the thing is that essentially um, the, the chilling nature of the bureaucracy yeah. of the time um, produced those records. So those records exist. Right. And essentially the Indian agent uh, played the role as the Gestapo yeah. and Gestapo. the church, the Gestapo and the church played the role of the enforcing yeah. entity. Yeah. So the church has kept those records. Yeah. It, it's just uh, they are now um, uh, unaccessible because of the Privacy Act of Canada. Right. So now these people are shielding themselves behind uh, the, the legal arm of the Canadian government. Right. The accountability thing, the valley, the lives are so devalued that their deaths don't make it into the news people don't need to care they don't even know look back in the day right yeah anyway so we don't need to get there but the point is this kind of stuff happened all around the world and that's the flip side to this whole kind of migration map that people are obsessed with mm-hmm. where my social studies uh, textbooks still showed like mm-hmm. portuguese colonial empire french colonial empire where did the french expand you know in the americas you know from from lower Canada and upper Canada to, mm-hmm. you know, the Mississippi Valley. Where did they go? It's a very fetishized way of looking at yeah, the world. Yeah. Where did they go? Where do they, like, uh, where mm-hmm. do they claim? What were their territorial claims? Like, why are those the maps that we're looking into social studies, right? So, mm-hmm. like, it would be actually cool to produce a map like this but for the real world, right? Yeah. But anyways, the point is, though, I, I tried to do this based on some data, but also based on, like, some creative license. And it also reflects the lore. So, this is not going to be represented in the real world, but has some similarities, Okay. So we've already talked about the colors um, and we've, we've, we've talked about the symbols of three things, um, decimation, annihilation. And the third one I just thought was interesting to put in because it's kind of like it's not a happy note, but it's also part of the picture of disruption, which is that um, because of this kind of like drastic kind of like end of the world catastrophe that's happening all around certain peoples, they decide to isolate themselves. They decide to go away. And, you know, not um, like if they have contact, it's minimal. So they, they try to uh, filter their contact or have a buffer. Right. And so there's like people like this all around the world. Case studies of this. Right. Like the int- most interesting things is like some of the places that you think of uh, as being like the oldest civilization centers have some of the oldest 
examples of mm-hmm. prolonged isolated peoples who choose to. Um, and, you know, the, these are called the Vedas, okay? The Wania Leto peoples. Uh, that just, I think that means forest dwellers. I'm not sure if it means forest dwellers in Tamil or Sinhalese, but, um, but the Veda is what the Sinhalese would call them, right? And um, so from the earliest records of ancient Sri Lanka, there are references to people who choose to remain as hunter-gatherers in the inland forest and the mountain forest. There are still peoples mm-hmm. today who still practice the silent trade in the Himalayas. Do you know what the silent trade is? Silent trade? Yeah, silent no. trade. Silent trade usually happens when you have a settled people and hunter-gatherer people who mm. interact, but they don't they don't interact very often. So, for example, the Mihak people, they speak a language isolate. They're also called the Kusunda. They'll go to these farmers in the valleys and they'll leave like honey. And then the next day they come back and they expect arrowheads or something. They expect something, but they don't do any kind of like prolonged interaction. It's just, it's just, mm. I leave something here, like a deer hoof and you give me something. Right. So they, they've done this for centuries and it, it's not that, you know, they can't do what the other person does. They just choose to do this. So in some of the most settled and civil, like what would be historically cliche term civilized areas in the world, there are peoples who have chose to not be part of those worlds. So India is a very interesting example of having so many of these people living side by side with these like huge tax collecting empires and, and city states. It's just it's just the diversity of human culture and choice is so interesting in India. Anyway, so that's one example. And I, I invented this one, the Nahala people. So Papua gets Indianized, like culturally, but their languages are still Papuan, all the different Papuan languages. But I'm saying here that there will be still people like the Dani who choose to not be part of that, just like the Vedas. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could still imagine a 1930s discovery of an isolated tribe. What is actually really fascinating about this, though, is that the Papuan isolated peoples that were discovered in the 1930s, they were farmers and they were in the mm. tens of thousands in population. Mm. That's how remote these, these mountain plateaus are. These farmers, not hunter gatherers, these farmers. So big populations remain isolated from, from all their surrounding peoples and from Europeans to the 1930s. Anyway, so there's all these isolated people around the world. Uh-huh. You know, the Baja we've talked about in other videos such fascinating people right and you know of course they do more contact and trade with the surrounding peoples um but there's still people who choose to live isolated from the others um and obviously i can't represent everyone who chooses that isolated kind of way but uh i'm trying to showcase an example like a good kind of cluster of them mm-hmm. um and so like you can see here uh in in, in the amazon or the shingu I'm not able to show like it's just too much. Like the most amount of isolated but also uncontacted tribes in the world is still remains in the Amazon, and I just call them the hundred tribes, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, you could really imagine bureaucrats using that term, but I, it's not something that I'm trying to say is supposed to be how you should call them. But you can see this term being used as an epithet. Um, but yeah, so th- that that's what I included those just to show you that in response to these things, mm-hmm. some people will do this. And so I'm just curious, you have, for example, um, text that goes with uh, these different events? Yeah. And descriptions? Yeah. That people can look up? Apart from that one, the, like the Nahala people? Yeah, yeah. All, all the other ones, people can actually 
Search up. Yeah. So the thing is, I, I use um, um, allusions and references so that they'll find something. So, for example, here, the Warakari massacres refers to the Moriori genocide. The Moriori genocide was one, actually this is one of the only non-European ones to make it on the map. During the Mari Wars, the Musket Wars in the late 1800s, um, a people from West uh, North Island, Aotearoa, a people, a tribe called the Warakari, they went to the Chatham Islands, which are isolated island that actually had a pacifist culture. They actually, uh, when they were on the brink of destruction, okay, in the last moments of their genocide, they got, they, they set, they, they met and asked each other, should we take up arms? And they still said no. Wow. They had a pacifist culture that said no war, no violence, that kind of stuff, because they were such a small island and in such like harsh uh, conditions, they decided to abandon that. And anyway, so they fell prey to this, Western, uh, this one tribe and this one tribe just in two events, they arrived two times, completely wiped them out. Like such decimation. Anyways, so if you search up this, you'll find the tribe's name and you'll find them linked to the Moriori. I didn't call it the Moriori genocide because the Moriori still survive in Altera in Chatham. It's this Caledonia Island, this alt geo. So I created this island myself. It's supposed to be an enlarged Lord Howe Island. I'm just very fascinated by Lord Howe Island because it's so isolated that its faunal and flora um, uh, makeup is very divergent. It has a lot of cool stuff. Um, if it was a larger island that looked kind of like uh, the Ooh. coast of um, Dalmatia of uh, Croatia, it'd be pretty epic to to visit. But anyways, this is supposed to be kind of like where the Papuan, um, you know, the South, uh, South Seas plantation historical narrative takes place in Altera. Mm -hmm. and to make room for that i have that massacre happened here first of all as a learning as a case study but also that affects no one in real life because no like the, the original inhabitants of this island I, i'm not making up that's the, the kind of creative license i'm doing i'm saying that the native people here we have no analog to in the real world and you know i don't have to make up their culture because they get wiped out it's sad i don't i'm not i'm not i'm not trying to advertise mm -hmm. you know mass atrocities but i'm just saying I've moved one mass atrocity that actually has a real world analog where, and I've moved it to somewhere where it's just fictional. And yeah, so, so that, so if they search it up, they'll find that. The Pintubi tribe are one of the last peoples to be uncontacted in Australia in the 20th century, early 1900s. They walked out of the desert and met, you know, Europeans for the first time. The Tugi tribe is just one of those uh, Tasmanian uh, Aboriginal peoples that I found um, as a name and reference for. Uh, in real life, there are no 100% descendant um, survivors. Most of them, the people who claim to be parts of uh, these various tribes in Tasmania, they, uh, they have a lot of uh, European ancestry and they're trying to revitalize their culture, the culture of their ancestors. But you can still say a successful genocide happened in Tasmania. Anyway, so I say that after the genocide happens, one tribe, let's say, gets away and they're hiding in the Tarkine, Tarkine forest. That's, that's kind of lore I have. And it's actually kind of interesting because uh, the Tasmanian tiger in my world does not get exterminated. So instead of Tasmanian tiger sightings in Tasmania, or it's called Antibria, I'm just saying the analog of these kind of sightings would be the Tuki tribe people. Yeah, the Kalanoro clearances, that's something I made up completely because Siluria is made up. The Bajau people actually... Uh, we were just talking about it. You know, they have a cognate in Madagascar. Really? 
the fishing folk of southwest Madagascar are called the Vezo. Mm-hmm. Vezo is completely cognate to Bajau. So the B and V, you can see, you know, Spanish, B and Cuba, Cuba. The B and V are merging or being supplanted. Mm-hmm. So B and V, and then uh, A, U, and O. And then J and Z, 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 that's easy. So Bajau, Vezo, they're the same word. They mean fishing folk or people who are um, tied, who are reliant upon fish is actually what it describes. Mm. I wanted to use them as the people who get wiped out, but they're real people. So I don't want it. I didn't want that. So I use another term. Kalanoro is a Malagasy word for forest peoples that are mythical. They have it in their lore that the forest people of their island disappeared when the, when the forest was taken. Is that cool? They mm. said that once they started cutting down the trees, these Kalanoro people started disappearing. Mm. So kind of like in Iceland, the Malagasy, when they settled this, they had to invent an, an other. In Iceland, they invented elves and the interaction between humans and elves to kind of, kind of show that kind of conquest thing. Here's the same thing. When we arrived, these people disappeared. There's no evidence of earlier inhabitants than the Malagasy. So the Malagasy invented this whole lore of people disappearing because they arrived. Mm. That's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. I and, mean, little parentheses. I don't know if this is worth going in the episode, but I mean, it's, I mean, you said Malagasy, Madagascar. Yeah. It's first populated by Austronesian peoples. Yeah. Yet Madagascar is so close to the African continent. Yeah. So who would say that you wouldn't have an ancestral population? Yeah. Which would, for example, have ancestry to the, to, to the continent or the continent. Yeah. Which were, were there. Yeah. Yet not, you know, yeah. recorded in, in the way we usually do. Well, the, the thing is, they have no archaeological findings. Yeah. Once they find it, we'll be able to. Exactly. But um, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, and, and actually, it's been recorded that when the Malagasy started arriving, probably just like a couple, you know, right after them. The Bantu expansion reached Madagascar. People started arriving on the other side. Mm. And it's really cool. You should look at a, like, you know how I have that genetic profile thing? They started doing studies in Madagascar. It's fascinating. The Malagasy Highland is the, so all on the West Coast, it's majority, um, like, has shared genetic ancestry with Southern Africa. This Highland area. But when you go in the Highland, it's very Austronesian. Almost like 80%. Wow. It's fascinating. Like uh, there are very Asian looking people in Madagascar, but they live in the highlands, right? There's a spectrum. Yeah. A spectrum in Madagascar. It's just fascinating. Yeah. It's, um, it's It's hard to look at, at the, at the end of the day, you know, because it just shows how, but I think it's good that you have it in this map because we're talking about genetics. We're talking about human migration. Yeah. And population talking about, yeah. race admixture yeah and um yeah. it's part of the world we live in yeah in which you know yeah a, a lot of areas in in our current world have been uh replaced radically replaced yeah. radically replaced yeah. and uh it's important to know that that has happened yeah you know that has happened so for example america is probably what looks closest to real life right Whereas, like, you can see there's a lot of whites in northern and... Yeah, so, so here, white means no population replacement. So in minimum, your world, minimum. or minimum, yeah. or less than 30%. Yeah. So in your world, the, the plains and the Pacific Northwest and yeah. the Arctic yeah. Um, yeah. has received minimal yeah. uh, 
mm-hmm. just like, you know, Western Amazon or, you know, Shingun mm-hmm. and, and the Andes. Mm-hmm. Actually, in our real world, it's actually like for someone who wants to really experience um, being totally immersed uh, in a non, it's not to say it's a, not a colonial context, but in a non-settler dominated demographic context, go to Bolivia. You will be surrounded by people who you thought, who you never gave a thought to. Okay, like you never even thought these people, you never thought about them. Okay, because there's so much erasure in in the colonial context of the Americas. You go to Bolivia, you'll be reminded this is what it used to look like. Like Bolivia is majority mestizo and indigenous, but even the mestizo, they're they're quite indigenous in their ancestry. And it just shows you the resilience of these like highly populated areas of the of the Americas that, you know, after all these atrocities near genocidal campaign, actually Bolivia, where, you know, I told you about the Potosi mine and how people had to maim their children to prevent them from being taken to those mines. So and the fact that this country still comes out as like majority, like it's still colonial, just they're still dealing with their colonial context. But demographically, you know, it's just. Anyway, okay, so that's done. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's, well, that's a wrap. wrap. That is a, yeah. Um, core note to end on, but you know that that's, it is what um, it is. It is. I mean, it's especially today. It's very important to recognize this yeah. because um, I mean, at, at least I can't I can't talk for the whole of the world, but yeah. at least in the Pacific Northwest in Canada there's a little space that has been created to assert for indigenous rights yeah and that was the time yeah yeah and that's to the build to on this kind of stuff well I mean all yeah to be interested but also to build on the work that a lot of people have been doing yeah in the last couple of decades yeah and um mm-hmm. alright <laughs> alright alright alright